Never 21 when everyone's a sailor Coming up strong at the animal bar Never loving Mark of Mr. Norman Mailer Turn another page at the Welcome everyone to the Book and Film Globe Week in Review Podcast. I'm your host, Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, www.bookandfilmglobe.com. We cover the worlds of books and film and streaming TV and trivia game shows. I was a contestant on the ABC game show The Chase, and my fellow contestant Nellie Koo will be here to break down our near miss at the hands of James Holzhauer. Book and Film Globe contributor William Schwartz will be here in a little bit to talk about the controversy and the discourse around the new Adam McKay climate apocalypse movie or comet apocalypse movie, Don't Look Up. But first, we're going to talk about Norman Mailer. I didn't think I'd be talking about Norman Mailer ever again, but there was a Norman Mailer controversy in the news, and book critic Carolyn Kellogg is going to stop by to discuss and debate it with me. So that'll be a lot of fun. It's always a lot of fun here on the Book and Film Globe Week in Review podcast. Here we are again. The new year is upon us, and things are as contentious as ever. We'll be right back to talk about Norman Mailer. I don't know about you, but I didn't have first literary controversy of 2022 being about Norman Mailer on my bingo card. And yet here we are. Norman Mailer is in the news for some reason again. Uh, I wrote a piece about this on the site this week, and I am very Happy and lucky to be talking to my old acquaintance, Carolyn Kellogg, about this today. Carolyn is a writer and a book critic and the former books editor of the L.A. Times, and she joins me today. Hello. Hi, Neil. Thank you for uh, talking to me about this. You know, it's just ironic. Like, I think we first met when you interviewed me for something. It was like a proto podcast 20 years ago. It was actually a podcast, but I had to keep explaining to people what it was. Right, so it was like an early podcast, and now and now we've reversed roles. One of the great ironies of, of our profession. So there's a controversy involving Norman Mailer, and as best I can understand it, Random House was going to publish a collection of his political writings to coincide with the 100th anniversary of Mailer's birth, and then the way the news was reported, Michael Wolf, who's a you know a journalist and a gadfly and all that, reported on The Ankler, which is an entertainment substack, that a junior staffer had complained uh, about the title and content of an old Mailer essay called The White Negro, and then just like that, Random House pulled the book. And you seem to express some skepticism on Twitter that this is exactly what went down. Well, I mean, Michael Wolf is not the, he wrote Fire and Fury. I mean, he's a journalist, but kind of journalist in quotes. And it totally seemed like he wrote it while hungover on the first day of the year. It didn't make all that much sense. And so, yes, I was skeptical, but I have no idea what the inner workings of Random House are. Random House went on to say that uh, they had never had the book under contract. But then Andrew Wiley, the mailer estate uh, literary agent, said that it was going to Skyhorse. Yes. Which is really like where the canceled go to gain attention. Like it's just. They published the Woody Allen memoir. They published so many like anti-vax, like pro-Trump books. It's kind of disturbing. And I don't know why anybody with a good reputation would want to publish a book with them, except maybe now Norman Mailer has just a totally trashed reputation. What do you think? 
I didn't think Norman Mailer's reputation was that trashed. I mean, I, I, well, that's why I think it's so ironic that this happened because I, no, no one was talking about Norman Mailer at all. It hadn't for quite some time. He's been dead for a few years. He's not, you know, he's not, you know, as a lot of people were saying on literary Twitter, we, no one reads him anymore. I don't know if that's actually true. There have been a lot of people who responded that they do still read him and they, they do, do, do still find him relevant and that his past works hold up, you know, even more so than like his contemporary Gore Vidal. So, I do think that Skyhorse is a place where books go not to die, but go books that no one else wants end up. And it was very clear that for some reason, no one else wanted Norman Mailer. It's really strange because Random House did say on the record uh, that they happily published his backlist. They issued a collection of his political essays in 2013, which I have on my shelf, which has the white Negro in it. And the white Negro is a terrible title. It's a deeply offensive uh, essay on many levels. But if, they, if, they, if they're already publishing it, then why the hoo-ha over this new book? It doesn't make any sense. And the New Republic reported that all these junior staffers at Random House were like, if only, if only I could get a book canceled. In other words, you know, someone made the decision up up top. But, but again, like, OK, so Skyhorse is going to publish one book, but then Random House is going to keep publishing The Naked and the Dead and The Executioner's Song and maybe the two other Norman Mailer books that still sell some copies every year. One of the reasons why people who don't read Norman Mailer have said online that they don't read him is because he was super violent, like and he was engaged with the idea of masculinity and violence being connected in a lot of his writing. And as uh, one critic that I was reading this week put it like he created this sort of like individualistic religion of his own. It's like very like he has this very weird faith and all these rules about it. Like in one place, he comes out for rape, which is not good. He frequently got into like fist fights at parties. He he headbutted Gore Vidal twice. Uh, he stabbed his wife, Adele Morales, in the chest and he narrowly missed her heart. But she declined to press charges. And that was back in 1960. So it was a long time ago. He had a long career after he stabbed a woman like he was still invited onto Dick Cavett. And that wouldn't happen today. And there, there's no question about it, you know, but that era of literary male ego, I mean, as you know, I mean, that, that was what my whole first book was making fun of was that generation of dudes thinking they were macho because they could put you know paragraphs together. He was like the ultimate writer who considered himself like a colossus astride the earth who no one could stop. You know, it was an ego, like an out of control ego. And that's all true, but that's also kind of all old news. And and, and people are going to like, wait, they're, they're like, wait, now we should retroactively stop reading a writer because he was a macho shit. <laughs> it doesn't, doesn't seem to make sense. And there, there, there are still some people for whom that, that work has relevance. And some of his work like doesn't have anything to do with that. You know, it was like, it was just like, True tales of World War II or like uncovering the the secrets of the CIA. He was re re really big into that. You know, Harlot's Ghost was an excellent novel about the inner workings of the CIA. I will say the second the second half of Harlot's Ghost is a great novel. The first 250 pages he should have just tossed. All right, well, fine. Okay, that's a legitimate <laughs> quibble. But, you know, the, the fact that he wrote the second half of a great CIA novel, not everyone can pull that off. And the Executioner's Song, you know, is a classic work of literary journalism. I mean, he, I'm not a big Norman Mailer fan. I think he was, you know, I again, like I said, like I, I've spent like a, a good chunk of my adult life brutally making fun of him in print. 
So <laughs> it's what built this vast empire on which I, I, I now sit, you know, but uh, in general, like I just find the whole controversy very strange. The same thing kind of happened with Philip Roth, right? You know, with, with the cancellation slash not cancellation of his biography. It's like all of a sudden, but like. That was because the biographer was very credibly accused of grooming teenage students that he taught that he, that he then had sex with. And he yes. sort of waited until they were just over 18 and okay. then got them liquored up. I, I understand why Blake Bailey was was discredited. I mean, obviously, but you know, it also brought up a lot of stuff about Philip Roth. So I guess we're you know we're just going to be continually having this converse these conversations about that generation of male writers until like you know two generations down. Literally, no one's ever heard of them. But we're we're, we're constantly reconsidering Roth and Mailer and Gore Vidal and um and and those folks. And it's just it's very interesting to me that uh, this conversation came up and that there were so many people. People who are so willing to support this situation. I was surprised by it. That's all. Did you feel like it was generational? To some extent, I guess. I mean, I think that it was, I think it's like a millennial versus Gen X and boomer thing. I don't think Gen Z, my, my son, you know, I have a 19 year old son. He'd never heard of Norman Mailer. He doesn't know who that is. You know, he knew who Betty White was. <laughs> <laughs> But she's on TV, you know, you know, it's like I, so I, I feel like it, to some extent it's generational. Uh, I do feel like um, younger literary professionals are more willing to pull the plug on careers, whereas I feel like people our age are even if we understand that there are problematic things about people's lives and careers that we're more willing to sort of let it slide. I don't know about that. Uh, okay. But I think that Mailer's prominence to me is interesting. Initially, it was interesting because like I was assigned to read him in college and like I found his writing sometimes hysterical, like that huge bravado and ego could sometimes bring great insight or ideas to fight with, you know, something interesting. But now what interests me is his role in popular culture being so significant in the second half of the 20th century. Why did his ideas resonate? Why? did people let him get away with stabbing his wife? Like, to me, that's interesting. And I don't know the answer to that. I mean, I think, you know, he he was part of sort of a backlash against the sort of first wave feminism. Um, but I but I don't know. I don't have a lot of thought about that. I just I just know okay. that there were there was a there was an industry that supported these massive male writerly egos that simply doesn't do that anymore. Even our sort of most egotistical male writers like Jonathan Franzen don't you know, he's a birder, <laughs> you know, he's a birder. Norman Mailer was a boxer. There's a big difference. <laughs> and a great writer today is something very different than what a great writer was considered back then. I do find it interesting, as a side note, that one of his most fervent defenders on the internet has been Joyce Carol Oates. <laughs> you can always count on Joyce Carol Oates to have the wrong take. After people started pushing back about her supporting him, and, you know, she lived a huge chunk of her writing life in his shadow. Like, yes. people talked about her publicly as, like, second tier and him being first tier. And she said that his last wife was, like, like that he was a really good husband to Norris Church Mailer. His sixth wife. He was great. He was a great sixth husband or whatever. He yeah. was a great sixth husband. And it's like, you don't get to call him not a bad husband if uh, he stabbed a wife. He was like a, he was like eleven percent a good husband. <laughs> but even even with his last wife, he was running around on her and stuff. She right. wrote about it in her memoir, yeah. so yeah. it's not yeah. like it's scurrilous rumors. 
I, again, like I, 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 I'm not defending him. I just think it's funny that Joyce Carol Oates, who's like the basically at this point the last surviving member of that literary generation, is out there on Twitter having to defend him against like a phalanx of first and second time novelists, grad students, book critics, people who are just like love roasting her on a daily basis. I, I find it quite comic. She must get something out of being ratioed, right? Well, relevance. I don't know. She's still in the conversation. There's a movie about her Marilyn Monroe book coming out next year. Joyce Carol Oates is uh, ending with a bang. Wait, didn't they have dueling Marilyn Monroe books? Yeah, they both wrote about Marilyn Monroe, but Blonde, which is Joyce Carol Oates' book. There is a movie coming out this year starring uh, Ana de Armas as Marilyn Monroe. I had no idea. I don't really know, Carolyn, like what the takeaway from all this is other than that. I just feel like these kinds of, you know, these kinds of Internet based literary controversies are just going to keep popping up. I think that um, stabbing someone you're married to (laughs) does put you kind of in the doghouse. Um, It's a cancelable offense these days. I mean, the real danger with literary cancellation is what. Uh, you know, nobody wants to talk about is the way the right is attacking like the 1619 project and state after state after state. There's something like 16 states now where you can't even talk about anti-racism in the classroom. Like that's the real fight to fight. And it's much more fun to like cancel an old dead dude who's who is obviously an egomaniac than it is to like go to state legislatures and fight for the real free speech. Well, we talk about this on, on the podcast on the site. You know, there's two sort of front in the censorship front. Um, there's the, the stuff within the publishing industry where the there'll be this occasional flare up over uh, an old dead white dude and books getting shunted around and, and moved off of lists. And then there are the activists, uh, the right wing activists who are trying to get any book with LGBTQ content removed from libraries. Neither are good. Neither are good impulses. They're both the sensorial impulse, but they, they, they have, they're having different effects. I feel like it's all kind of just serving to chill debate and make you not want to talk about anything ever. I am happy that you are uh, talking, that <laughs> you're willing to put your foot in it, Neil. Are you? I don't know if you are. I put my foot, I, I've been putting my foot in, in piles of crap for 20 years. I don't think I'm going to stop now. And same. All right. Well, Carolyn, hey, it was great to talk to you. And I, I feel like, um, you know, this this kind of stuff's going to come up again. So you, we can either chat again or you can even write for us. That's kind of fun. OK. OK. I did write about this for the L.A. Times after all. But uh, yes, I'd be oh, happy to. Yeah, our pay rate is way beyond what the L.A. Times could possibly offer. So. <laughs> OK. Awesome. All right, Carolyn. Thank you so thank much. You. We'll talk to you soon. Bye. By far the most talked about and controversial movie of the season is Don't Look Up, a new uh, apocalyptic satire from Adam McKay, the uh, director who collaborated with Will Ferrell on Anchorman and more famously has uh, also directed Vice and The Big Short. He's made a move into more sort of political comedy filmmaking. And uh, Don't Look Up has generated a lot of debate. William Schwartz, our frequent contributor, uh, wrote a piece talking about the uh, sort of strangeness of that debate and how it's blurring ideological lines. William, hello. Hello. 
You point out that like the movie is essentially an analog uh, metaphor for climate change. It's about a, a comet that's going to crash into Earth and extinct, extinguish humanity. And then the initial response was like climate change scientists or, or people who were really concerned about climate change were like, you see, this just shows that all the um, conservatives who are climate change deniers are, are wrong and they're ignoring it and they're mocking it. But then a, you know, sort of a strange thing happened. I started seeing conservatives online praising the movie and suddenly all the lines got blurred and you kind of point that out in this article that uh, the movie isn't as simple as it was originally advertised. You know, it was definitely produced with a mind for being Ward's bait because Adam McKay, who has made all of these critically acclaimed movies like Vice and Big Short that get into these political topics, these hop on political issues, always been very well reviewed, always very well liked. And this time he actually had a big budget. He had Extremely well-known cast, Leonardo DiCaprio, Jennifer Lawrence in the lead roles, because both were really interested in it. And that's definitely what it was aiming for, was to be this big prestige picture that you would expect would be, you know, kind of looking down on conservatives, because that is our cultural moment. But aside from the comet denialism rallies that show up later in the movie, nearly all of the actual content matter is about how Leonardo DiCaprio and Jennifer Lawrence try to get the word out in the media when the politicians don't do anything and nothing happens. Right. And, you know, the the media you're talking about, you know, they, they don't just make fun of Fox News, which would be the obvious target. I mean, they do make fun of Fox News, but, you know, there's a talk show that's kind of a parody of Morning Joe. They make fun of The New York Times and the president, President Orlean, is played by Meryl Streep, who is there's no Meryl Streep is not playing Donald Trump. She's essentially, as you point out, playing sort of a, almost a like a Hillary Clinton like politician. I think Meryl Streep's performance is interesting. It's kind of like one of those pictures that it's either a rabbit or a bird. Blue, blue dress or a yellow dress. Yeah, that kind of thing. It depend, depends entirely on what you see her as first, because you can read Meryl Streep's president as being like this tough on crime girl boss or whatever. You could also read her as a Trumpish figure. It depends entirely on what your what your vantage point hones in on first, because there's plenty of interpretations for her to either be a Clintonite with Bill Clinton literally on her desk or a Trump person with the rallies late in the movie. And, you know, you talk about conservatives liking the movie. That's probably because that's the exact image they saw. They see her as a liberal who doesn't like to do anything and who is always very cynically trying to manipulate the media. And then there's the, uh, the also the aspect that some conservatives who, who I've read who've liked it, you know, the um, movie sort of concludes with this idea that, it, you know, in the face of apocalypse, the best thing to do is, is turn to faith and family because that's all that really matters. While the sort of the quote unquote liberals are like partying and having sex and doing drugs and, and, and violence. The movie seems to defy all categories. It's, it's a really grim topic. Like. Dr. Strangelove is the main thing that immediately comes to mind because you're overall looking at a very similar concept. The apocalypse happening because all the political systems are too incompetent to stop it. And it even has the same ending because in Dr. Strangelove, they come, okay, if nuclear war is forever, we need to go to the bunker with all the younger women to repopulate the human race or whatever. But we actually get to see that in Don't Look Up, and it actually goes much worse because, unsurprisingly, the people with the ridiculously goofy plan to try to mine the comet for minerals, their plan to colonize another another solar system didn't really work out so well, even though it, they got much farther than the, even they were expecting to. But fundamentally, none of these people had any idea what they're doing. That's the part of the movie is really scary. It's less the comet itself. It's the idea that all the people in charge have no idea what they're doing. They can't take things seriously. They won't listen to the people who actually know stuff. And there's absolutely nothing we can do about it. It's very grim. 
but still presented with a strong sense of humor. And I think that's why the movie has been so popular, despite the fact that critics trashed it when it first came out. The thing about Don't Look Up, too, is that, you know, you mentioned, obviously, like, there's no comet crashing into the Earth, but, you know, climate change is an ongoing concern. And so is COVID. And no one at this point is going to say that our, our, our institutions handled the pandemic very well. I mean, we're just continually stepping on a rake. There's lots of nitpicking about how good the analogy really is, because like, if you really want to be technical, the kinds of space launches that are being done in the movie, China could probably do that on their own. They wouldn't need help from other countries to do it. That's kind of the funny thing. You never get this kind of nitpicks with, say, whatever the latest Marvel movie is that happens to have a person of color or a woman in the lead role. We're still supposed to celebrate those for their completely implied political statements about representation. And don't look up if anything is seem to be getting attacked a lot just because it's making a pretty clear political statement. It's not trying to beat around the bush or anything. God forbid someone should uh, you know write write something that uh, is relevant that people can relate to. You know, I'm just I, I admit it. The level of discourse, the amount of discourse about this movie, really caught me by surprise, and uh, and the, the nuances of it are very are, are more more interesting in a lot of ways than the movie itself. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. William, you did a great job pointing all that out in your piece this week. And Don't Look Up is on Netflix now and probably forever. And we will talk to you soon. Great talking to you, Neil. May, I went to Los Angeles and taped an episode of the game show The Chase, which is a sort of a post-Jeopardy trivia competition where the greatest Jeopardy champions of all time play teams of players and destroy their dreams and try to beat them in uh, quiz competitions. And then I had to not talk about it for months and months and months while they held the episode in a vault. And then it finally aired last week. And it can now be revealed to the world that I, in fact, did not win on the chase, that James Holzhauer uh, took $155,000 out of my pocket and crushed my dreams. Uh, Nellie Koo was my teammate who made it to the final chase, and she joins me on the podcast. Say hello to Nick, Nellie, and Neil. Now, I want to ask all of you, who do you not want to see come out up there? I don't want to see Holzhauer at all. Okay, which chaser will you be playing against tonight? He's known for breaking the bank and crushing players' dreams. It is James the Butler Holzhauer. <laughs> hey, Neil, how's it going? <laughs> I'm okay. So, obviously, like, since this aired, I mean, I... I'll admit I told my wife about this, but I hadn't told anybody else, not another human being on Earth. So you and I have been exchanging maudlin <laughs> Facebook messages like, you know, on and off. We haven't even, we're even in a Chase contestants group on Facebook. And we haven't shared the the results with anybody else. So it's been I guess in some ways it's good that they finally tore off the Band-Aid. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I mean, 
I told my roommate because I can't just disappear during COVID for five days and not tell my roommate where I went. (laughs) And uh, my sister found out I was in California. She lives in New York. And she's like, where are you? I'm like, I'm I'm in a hotel room. And she's like, but why are you there? (laughs) Between uh, my sister and her husband and my roommate, it's been an annoying eight months of when are you going to be on air? When is that happening? (laughs) Right. When when is it going to happen? And then I had to sort of pretend because, you know, I this is no secret. I, I was on Jeopardy and I won and I had a big party for that and you know and I'm, I'm good at trivia right and so everyone just was like expecting that I was going to win that they were going to watch me on TV and that I was going to have some kind of grand triumph look I, I it's not like I feel bad about how how we performed I mean we we came super close super close to winning this thing so close it was so ridiculously close and it, I think I mean, it hurts real bad, obviously, but uh, I think if we had, you know, lost by a large margin, I think I would be ashamed. <laughs> yeah, there's no shame. There's no shame in how we performed. I mean, that's the thing. We lost by six seconds. And if we had just gotten one or two questions more right, and if James Holzhauer had missed one or two more questions, it was one of those basketball games that comes down to the final minute, right? So, you oh, know, totally. it was, was not a blowout. We, we did make it to the final chase. And then the problem is it was a one-time shot. It's not like, you know, we have a, a 162-game season and we lost one. This it's is like, it. oh, and then bye. Get back on the plane. Go home now. <laughs> right. Literally, it's like, okay, we're going to take away your face shield, put you on a bus, and we'll never see you again. You know, all the producers who were so nice to us during their during our, our run-up, they just vanished. I know, right? <laughs> Okay, thank you for bringing all that stuff we made you bring. Now go home. (laughs) You have been fed like chuck meat through the entertainment meat grinder. I know it's very very disappointing. You know, I will say like, and I know you haven't, you weren't on Jeopardy. The experiences were very different. In some ways they're the same. It's like you're thrust into the limelight. You know, it's like Ken Jennings once described it as like Jumanji, like having the game come to life around you. You're suddenly thrust on the stage. People are doing your hair and makeup and then you actually have to answer the quiz questions. I think the difference is Jeopardy is this venerable institution. And even if you lose on it, and most people who go on it lose, you're part of something bigger, right? There's this warm, fuzzy family feeling about it. Everyone who was working on the chase was very nice and professional, but I didn't get a warm, fuzzy feeling from it. I also kind of feel like, you know, we're still in this COVID life. And I think it felt cold because they couldn't be the way they were maybe before COVID. No one could get closer to people. We all had to stand really far apart from each other and awkwardly stare at each other from like six feet away. And um, maybe if we had done this during a uh, non-pandemic life, maybe we would have walked away with a little different idea. But unfortunately, this was this was our experience. <laughs> yeah, this is what I did during. I mean, it literally is what I did during the pandemic was this and like improve. And I wrote a book that I added to the website and I improved my my poker skills, but. <laughs> You know, this was this was it. My life was a training montage. I mean, I dr- I, I drilled hard for this sucker. I, mean, <laughs> I, I was up doing sporkle quizzes all night. Sometimes I was like, you know, I was reading books of science facts. I was like memorizing cast lists on IMDb. I was I really went hard, and I played a lot of online trivia. 
It uh, honestly, I'll be real. Uh, so I'm I'm a trivia host, and I know you've played trivia down in Austin. And um, I didn't for once think that I was going to be on a show like this. And then I was like, how do you even like prepare for something like this? Well, here's the thing. Like, I wish. I mean, obviously, they keep they don't tell you who's going to be on your team. You, you, your identities are kept very separate from one another. I wish I'd known, and we could have trained. You know, we could have. I know, right? We could have run on the beach like Apollo and Rocky. Doing sit ups while reading flashcards. You know, like. <laughs> Yeah, I don't do flashcards. Like a lot of the trivia people do the flashcards. I don't like flashcards. I don't, I just don't, I don't buy into that. It's just like when some people who write the novels, you see them with their, their bulletin boards of the cards connected by strings. I just, I just kind of go by feel. I guess, I mean, you asked me like, what do you study? And I guess the, the answer is everything. Yeah. In the, in the scheme of things, that's me in the middle. That's me going to bed, reading on my phone and like falling into rabbit holes of like, oh, I wonder what that thing is. Right. Well, here's the thing. Like, you know, it's not a random. It's not like you're just picked out of the audience like someone on The Price is Right. <laughs> you know, so you got to be a sort of private personality and be somewhat presentable. And then you have to know a lot of stuff. There's mm-hmm. no other way around it. You, if you don't pass the test, they're not going to call you. Yeah. I mean, it's just like doing Jeopardy. I, when someone was asking me what, how I got on the show and I was like, have you ever done the Jeopardy quiz? And they're like, what? I was like, okay, so like you have to quiz. You have to literally take the SATs of trivia to get on these shows. <laughs> have you done that? Have you tried it? Uh, the Jeopardy one? Yeah. And then I get frustrated. I obviously like, you know, with all these shows, you're timed. So it's just like the pressure of seeing a number count down in front of me is like, oh, I'm just going to look at this now. Oh, no. Time's up. Oh, no. You might be in the wrong gig. (laughs) The thing is, this isn't about like synthesizing information or I play some online trivia league where you have 24 hours to come up with the right answer. I mean, if I can't come up with something in 24 seconds, I just quit. (laughs) I mean, it's generally I think like it's the fear of like messing up. And then, of course, second guessing yourself, which, you know, like when you know the answer, you know the answer. But when it's like worded weird, it's like, wait, what did that mean? (laughs) There were a couple there were a couple in our in our final chase round well there was one where it was some company based in memphis and i like i it was obviously the answer was obviously federal express Mm -hmm. but i said holiday inn because my dad had once worked for holiday inn when we lived in memphis so i know that was kind of a weird answer Oh, yeah. And I mean, that's the other thing, like with these shows is, you know, you buzz in with confidence and you either it either comes to the top of your head immediately or you go with the next best thing. And unfortunately, sometimes that's wrong. <laughs> God, what a nightmare. I'm so I'm, I'm I'm sad it's over. I'm glad it's over. I'm envious that you still have the possibility of Jeopardy in front of you. Like that's in the rear view for me. I'll never get back on that. Um, you know, I, I guess who wants to be a millionaire is still a possibility if it ever comes back. But I'm kind of keep I've got my eye on card sharks. Yeah. Or, or the weakest link. That's a good one. Well, that's a possibility. I did apply for that during the pandemic, but they didn't call back. But card sharks is next, man. And maybe maybe you and I will compete against each other <laughs> on card. I don't sharks. know this man. He wore a different shirt on a different show. <laughs> right. Well, and, yeah. Before we go. My God, you know, it's like they didn't make fun of you. You know, they were pretty nice to you. I mean, they were like, we can admit a few like fast and furious cracks to you. But boy, they were relentless about my sartorial choices. <laughs> and I'm sorry. That shirt is fucking awesome, dude. It's a cool shirt. Who is it? One of 
my friend messaged me the next day and he was like, oh my gosh, I saw you on TV last night. That's so cool. Like, I feel so bad for that really cool dude with the cool shirt. Cause like they got made fun of the whole time. <laughs> so people are yeah. on your side. You should have like a hashtag, you know? <laughs> yeah. Well, they were, they were all dressed like they were going to some, some kind of second tier bar mitzvah or something. So I don't say, I don't, it's not like Bruno Mars was in there making fun of me. <laughs> so who do you wish you could have had had for a chaser? Oh, I mean, I think I would have performed better. I mean, they're all good, of course, but I feel like I would I would match up very well against the beast. I feel like, you know, Brad Rudder's track record has not been great on the show. Let's face it. He's lost a lot. Um, you know, Ken Jennings, I think, would have been a tough out. Anybody but Holzhauer, you know, when it comes down to it. <laughs> Someone, well, my coworker asked me today because uh, they watched the whole like first season and this the season as well, and they're like, "Do you think they'd ever switch out Brad because he's kind of like the losingest chaser?" And well, uh, you know, it's funny they have their you know Jeopardy has these new super champions now. You know, Matt Amodio and Amy Schneider, and I think both of them would be absolutely it would be very difficult to beat. Amy's like she is like on fire. So oh, she's she's a destroyer, and you know they need a female chaser. Let's face it. Yes. I mean, she is the obvious choice for that role. I mean, we'll see. I don't think it's going to be you, unfortunately, and I don't think I'm going to be a chaser anytime soon. <laughs> But I think I'm going to I think next time you come down to Austin, you're going to have to come do a um, do a chaser with me and also a beer. Absolutely. I'm only three hours away. So, you know, yeah. it's only a matter of time before I get back down to Austin. Get in the car. All right. Nellie Koo, my fellow Chase uh, defeated contestant. Good to talk to you next time. Holes we'll do it. <laughs> Tournament of losers. We got this. Breaking rocks in a hot sun. Up on the lawn. All right. Thanks, Nelly. I'm sorry you didn't win at the chase. I'm even more sorry that I didn't win. I could have used that $155,000 so I could have spent more time going to the movies and watching streaming TV. Also, thanks to William Schwartz for stopping by to talk to me about Don't Look Up. Always good advice. And thanks to Carolyn Kellogg for stopping in to talk to me about Norman Mailer and literary censorship. We always talk about literary censorship on this show. A little surprising we're talking about Norman Mailer, but you know, life is a little surprising. Sometimes you win on a game show, sometimes you lose on the game show. I fought the chase, and the chase won. I am Neil Pollock, the editor-in-chief of Book and Film Globe, and the host of this amazing show. Thanks for listening. We'll talk to you soon. I fought the law and I fought the law.